Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit um, that Jesus said came to lead us into truth. And as we continue this series, I pray, God, that you'd, you'd guide us into the truth about you and about Jesus and about the types of people we can become as we're moving our way through this series on the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that we'd be a people that are open and surrendered to the help the Spirit can bring. I pray that we would trust you, maybe in ways we never have before as time goes on during this series, and that you would do innocent through us, honestly, more than we could ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you all are new, we're in the middle of a series um, on the Holy Spirit, and the branding is off the chain. It's just called The Holy Spirit the series. So, um, so it's, it's on the Holy Spirit. Uh, we mentioned a few months ago that as elders, uh, two things that kind of popped for us this year are uh, the, the, the idea of, not the idea, but the person of the Holy Spirit, focusing in on experiencing the Holy Spirit as a church, and then diving into our uh, kind of having healthy relationships is the other thing we want to focus on. And we're going to highlight that more later in the year, but to kick off the year, we're going to really lean into this area of the Holy Spirit. And so far, um, Grant has introduced us to this idea of the value of dependence, that we want to be a people led by the Spirit. That's one of our values as a church is spirit dependence. Um, from there, he kind of introduced us to the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, who is the Spirit? How is the Spirit um, distinct from the Son and the Father, yet uh, equally God? And, uh, and then last week, we obviously had Easter. And then today, what I'm going to do is dive into the fruit of the Spirit. And it's kind of interesting. We're, we're actually part of a family of churches and we, we planned this series on the Holy Spirit a few months ago, and about two weeks ago that, that Restored South Bay is starting a series on the fruit of the Spirit today. Uh, so it's kind of a cool thing chatting to Danny and those guys. By the way, uh, as a church, we had almost 1,500 people in our Easter gatherings, uh, our family of churches, uh, on Easter. So it's kind of an exciting time uh, for our family of churches. But that being said, I think we want to be able to think through how do we know, because this is a big thing that happens when we start to talk about the Holy Spirit, how do we know that we're actually encountering the Spirit? How do we know that, that it's not just hype? And, um, th there was a, a famous Christian musician and uh, worship leader, and he used to lead worship at Christian colleges and at churches. And he said so often people would come up to him and say, man, the Holy Spirit was really in there tonight. And he's like, I think you mean uh, the bass player was in there tonight. Uh, I think you mean, I think he says the, 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 G, the G chord. I'm not a guitar player, but he's like, man, once that chord plays, everyone gets emotional. Uh, you guys were kind of whipped up in a frenzy to get hyped know that the spirit was present and so how do we know that it's the spirit not just emotional hype or whatever it is and uh and one of the ways to know is the thing that we're going to talk about today is what does the spirit leave behind right um i i have three children um and when they were really young there were times where you could walk into the bathroom and go okay someone was in here and it wasn't an adult last okay not not Cla again the younger you know the younger ones or whatever but um Clive's in service now, so it always gets weird. I gotta work on that. But, um, but, uh, but a younger kid, you know, a younger kid, and you go, man, there's evidence that someone was here, and it's not good, right? Um, uh, on the flip side, there are many people who profess to be followers of Jesus who have done horrendous things in the name of Jesus, all while basically saying the Spirit told me to do it. Uh, the Spirit wanted me to do blank, and it's made um, Jesus and the church look terrible. Um, and so we don't want to be people who do that. In addition, like, we want to know that we're encountering God ourselves. Like, maybe we don't feel called to do something terrible. We're not, we're not trying to live a hypocritical life and then blame it on the Holy Spirit. 
But um, we might go, man, what is God actually doing in me? What's he calling me to? And so what I want to say is, is one of the hallmarkers that the Holy Spirit's been there is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into some, you know, we're going to look at uh, prophecy and miracles and healing over the next few weeks. Some of the more supernatural, uh, evidently supernatural aspects of the Holy Spirit. But one of the guardrails on that is, is the work of the Holy Spirit marked by the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is what the Spirit doing through you match what he's doing in you? In John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus speaking says this. He says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Now the thing about branches is that they get their power to bear fruit from something larger than themselves, something they are connected to. And the fruit that grows on a branch is a blessing to those around it. So the branch isn't the point, if that makes sense. Uh, The branch receives from a source and then gives to someone else. That's how the fruit of the Holy Spirit works. It's not just about you feeling better about yourself. I see the fruit of the Spirit. It's it blesses others if it's truly happening. And it comes from outside of us. And as a starting point to talk about how we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we'll be focusing in on Galatians chapter 5, this famous passage where Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. But before Paul laying out what a life looks like walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to contrast it to another, with another way of life. And basically Paul's going to say there's two frameworks for life. One is a framework, one framework is a life without God. So I do things my way, with my power, in my time. The other is learning to let the life of God flow through you. It's being a branch that connects to something greater than itself in bearing fruit. So if you have Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll start in in verse 13 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 say this. Paul writes, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, quick context on the book of Galatians. The Galatian church was planted in what is today modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was planted by the Apostle Paul, likely while he was stuck recovering from an injury. I love that. Like, he was so committed to gospel work and church planting and apostolic ministry. He's like, I'm here. My eye hurts. Who needs Jesus, right? My eye hurts. Some of you guys are spiritually blind. Let's gather in a community and plant a church. And so, again, classic Paul. So he starts this church, and he moves on. And after he moves on, uh, he left some... Uh, after he left, some guys come in that a lot of scholars call the Judaizers. Thanks so much, babe. And the Judaizers were basically people um, who were, um, they were Jewish, and they were Jewish followers of Jesus, which wasn't new. Paul was Jewish, and so were others. But what they were starting to do was, was say, listen, Gentile Christians, you have put your faith in a Jewish Messiah. And that's great. Like, believe in Jesus. But in addition to putting your faith in this Jewish Messiah, you need to obey the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. If you want to be made right with God, it's not enough to just believe in Jesus. You have to to obey the law as well. And so, um, you know, throughout church history, it's been called, like, the Galatian heresy. And essentially, it's legalism. It's Jesus is a good start. 
but then keep yourself in the kingdom all by yourself, kind of what Adam was getting at this morning in the offering talk. It's this gut level, are you really trusting in Jesus or your own performance? And so word gets back to Paul that this is happening, that they're going, hey, Jesus is good, grace is good, but really it's about your performance. And he's heartbroken and he's angry. He actually tells them, you are living as if Jesus didn't need to die. You're mocking the cross. And so their spirituality has now become performing for love. And Paul's like, listen, we don't obey to gain God's love. We obey because we have God's love in Jesus. We're motivated by love. We're not trying to attain love. We're not obeying the law in our own power. We listen to the Holy Spirit, knowing that we're loved by God, and then we do what he says. And so in response to this, the Galatians who've been influenced by these false teachers, um, they've likely started asking questions that, honestly, religious people, often church people, will ask anytime the gospel of grace is preached. They start asking questions like, or saying things like, if we tell people that God loves them regardless of their performance because of what Jesus has done for them, the motive they have to obey will go away. Like, why would they obey God? If they aren't afraid of God's punishment, how will they convince people to obey God? Won't people start kind of wiling out if we teach grace? Aren't they going to just do a bunch of bad stuff? And Paul's going to say, right, so, so Paul, won't people take advantage of this idea of living under grace or living by the Spirit? They're worried, peop- uh, uh, on the other hand, they're worried that people are going to say things like, the Holy, Sp- the Holy Spirit told me he wants me to be happy. So I'm going to abandon my kids and my spouse because they're a huge responsibility and they don't always make me happy. Thus, the Spirit is calling me into freedom. Or the Holy Spirit told me to be wise. And by wise, it means hoard all of my money, even though I have 10 times what I need. The Holy Spirit wants me to be true to myself and express my feelings whenever, wherever. So I scream at people who frustrate me and I never apologize or do reparative work or take responsibility. And Paul's like, no, if you're living out of a love that Jesus has for you and you're walking in the power of the spirit, you will love God and love people radically. You're not going to become this selfish, self-absorbed, spirit-led person. You're going to become a God-loving, people-loving, spirit-led person. He talks about this idea of faith working itself out through love, which means I trust God so much that I can love you sacrificially. Faith, trust, I'm trusting God, which is why I'm able to love you even when it's sacrificial. And Paul's going to say, if you've been forgiven by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, you'll use your freedom to love and serve others, not as an excuse to live a life of sin, dysfunction, and brokenness, but as a, a way to live in freedom. We'll keep reading. Uh, Galatians 5.16, it says, I say then, walk, so that's the context, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so one of the things that we need to know is that part of believing in Jesus is being filled by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle in this life. The flesh is still there drawing us back to our old selfish way of life. And to be clear here, Paul is not referring to your physical body when he says flesh. That's not what, what in Greek here, that's not what that is. 
Um, and again, a lot of uh, Christians kind of have this idea that the, that the body's bad and the spirit's good. And at the end of the day, that's not a Christian idea or a scriptural idea. Scriptures would teach that your body is sacred, made by God. It's important and valuable and holy in and of itself. Gnostics taught the spirit's bad, or the spirit's good, the body's bad. Um, so, so again, he's not saying that the body's bad. He's saying the flesh is this part of you that wants to rebel against God. And so when I say flesh, don't hear skin and muscle. Again, in the New Testament, um, when it uses the word flesh, it's referring to your old sinful self that was marred by the fall that isn't living in submission to Jesus. The flesh is the thing embedded within you, the broken, sinful, dysfunctional part of you that was driving you at the time of your, the times in your life where you look back and go, what was I thinking? I can't believe I did X. It's usually the flesh that really had you going. It's the part of you that's fundamentally selfish, a part of you that doesn't want to love God or love the people around you. So warring within all of us every day are the desires of this flesh I just talked about. And they're at war with the desires of spirit dwelling within us. And so there's the spirit, by the way, which is also you. It's the new you. It's the part of you surrendered to Jesus. It was created at the moment of your new birth, the new you. It's not foreign to you. It's actually you, just like the flesh is you. But it's the part of you that wants to do what is right. It's the part of you committed to loving God, to loving the people around you, the part of you that is generous, the part of you that's committed to truth and beauty and justice and grace, the part of you that wants to become like Jesus. And so every day we have a war going on in our hearts, and it's you versus you. The part of you that wants what is wrong, false, and ugly versus the you that wants what is so right, true, and beautiful. Again, the you that looks like Jesus. And so, by the way, this is a picture of the life of a disciple of Jesus. So if this is going on inside of you, don't think I'm a freak. Think I'm a Christian. We have, a sim- we have simultaneously a desire to love Jesus and practice his ways, and at the same time, again, simultaneously a desire to run our own life, our way, and indulge the flesh. And so what's described here is a battle of desire. And the word for desire here is the Greek word epithumia, and thumia is a word that means desire, something you want. Epi is kind of where we, it's where we get the English word epic, okay? So this is an over-desire. You want something too much. It's not desiring anything. It's, it's you desire it so much, you'll do anything to get it, essentially. Or you'll do anything to keep it. So literally, epithumias are our over-desires, our desires on steroids, our epic desire. And the desire has a source, and that source is the flesh, So there's this battle raging inside of us. And some of you uh, are here, maybe over the years as, as, as a follower of Jesus, if you're, not, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're, we're so pumped that, that you're here. But, if, but, but, um, but right now I'll talk to those who are, would, would describe themselves as followers of Jesus. And I'll sit with people as a pastor, and they'll feel so bummed out by the fact that they're struggling with sin. And listen, sin is a thing to be bummed out about. But the fact that there's a struggle means God's at work in your life. The fact that you're not content with the sin in your life says God is at work in you. And I've sat with people who are in tears going, what's wrong with me? Why do I still struggle the way I do? Maybe I'm not even a Christian. They go, no, 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 no. People who aren't followers of Jesus 
aren't heartbroken over their sin. I'm not talking about the consequences of sin. I'm saying actually your sin. Like you're like, man, I don't want to be this person. But if you hate sin and you want to uh, stop apart from the consequences, you know Jesus. Even if it's a sloppy fight that feels like you, you lose at times, you know Jesus. If you have the presence of a struggle, that probably means you have a war within, which means you're a real Christian, not a fake one. So hear me on this. People who don't struggle with sin aren't super saints. They're really unaware or they're non-Christians. We all wrestle with sin. We all wrestle with the flesh. So don't be discouraged if you have a fight with sin on your hands. It's there. But here's the thing. We have to fight. We don't just go, ah, it is what it is. I'm just this person. No, Paul's like, he's inviting us into new life. But we have to work at it. But we work at it in a very specific way. And that's being led by the Spirit under grace. So Paul lays out what living a life with the flesh in charge looks like in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things. I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul describes these over-desires. And um, scholars say you can break these up into probably three to four different categories. Um, the first one are, are sexual over-desires, okay? And this would be people, again, who take the gift of sex. God gave us this good gift of sex. That's to be a healthy, mutual enjoyable experience in, the, in a covenant, a lifelong commitment, and we distort it. We do something else with that gift. Uh, Eugene Peterson describes it this way in the message paraphrase. He says, repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. And again, when we just kind of do our own thing with sex, again, if, if, if um, repetitive, loveless, cheap sex doesn't describe secular, millennial approaches to sex, I don't know what does. It's where sex loses meaning and purpose and value. It could be expressed through all kinds of things. Um, pursuing sex with kind of random people. Um, it could be pornography. It could be, um, again, there's a ton of things it could be today, frankly. It's, it could get real weird and detailed. Um, but it's going, man, I want sex more than I want to follow Jesus. And I want sex on my terms and my way, again, according to the flesh. Then there's religious over-desires. So religious over-desires, when you look to something besides God to give us what only God can. Paul mentions here witchcraft, which might seem kind of old-fashioned, random. By the way, not that, uh, like, uh, walking around uptown, there's, like, people getting into witchcraft again. It's a vibe. Uh, I was, I've seen quite a few people doing tarot cards at coffee shops. I'm like, all right, we're doing that. We're doing that. Um, Christianity is so irrational and goofy, but, man, tarot cards, back at it. Um, I'm into science. But really, this is also true in conservative, legalistic church spaces where, again, it's I'm trying to manipulate or control God. So you can do that with a fortune teller or witchcraft or whatever. You can also do it through legalism. I'm trying to control God and make him do what I want by obeying him but not, but not loving him. It could also be, the uh, on the flip side, the progressive desire to make God be whatever we want, which is he agrees with us on everything and never asks me to do anything hard. 
Let me see. Um, so there's sexual uh, overdesires, r- religious overdesires. There's relational overdesires. Relational overdesires, it says, the way our flesh is fighting for position, prominence, acceptance, or control, and the way it destroys our relationships with people. Okay? This would be when you have an inability to apologize, you gossip, kind of beefing, frenemies. But you're trying to um, dominate relationships, saying all kinds of awful things to those around you that you regret. And then last but not least, so there's relational overdesires, and there's overindulging overdesires. It could be substances, food, alcohol, addictions, overspending, etc. Eugene Peterson describes it this way, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. This could be alcohol. This could be binge eating. This could be pornography. This could be shopping. This could be um, streaming, honestly. This could be gaming. It could be a whole bunch of things. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to end my life far from God, isolated from people, bitter, addicted to substances, using people for sex, and anxious about my future, which is what a life in the flesh takes you to. Again, the flesh is self-fulfillment, but always leads to self-destruction. Again, no one takes heroin for the first time to end up addicted or dead on the street, addicted on the street or dead. We know oftentimes that's where that takes you. No one pursues new sexual experiences to end up feeling cheap, used, or ashamed. No one gossips to lose friends. No one becomes a workaholic to save up money and so that their kids hate them. Again, when we follow the flesh, it takes us somewhere we don't really want to go. But we deceive ourselves. And so that's where the path will take us, and it's what's at stake. If we walk according to the flesh, it takes us somewhere that deep down we don't want to go. But the Spirit invites us to somewhere different. And that's where I want to close today. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit, so this is in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, how many of you guys are familiar with the idea of the fruit of the Spirit? You guys heard this before? Okay. Um, uh, if you grew up in church, you probably sang a song about it, drew some fruit, dressed up as a fruit. Uh, I've seen, it looks kind of like Fruit of the Loom, you know, <laughs> commercial where the kids are all dressed like fruits. Uh, that kind of vibe at a VBS maybe. It's like fruit salad, yummy, yummy, right? Um, now, a couple things about the fruit of the Spirit. There's some misconceptions about the fruit of the Spirit. The first thing is it's fruit, not fruits. All right? It's fruit, not fruits. The nine traits are actually a singular fruit. So imagine your favorite fruit for a second, right? Any mango people in the house? Yeah. Any kiwi fans? All right. A couple, couple woos. Raspberries? They get moldy. They're dangerous, but they're delicious. You know what I mean? Like puffer fish. Like, be careful. But tasty, right? So, so I want you to imagine your favorite fruits. Frankly, man, a good strawberry is also out of control. Um, or maybe you're more of a tomato person, which is technically a fruit. I know, heartbreaking stuff. But imagine your favorite fruit for a second. What Paul is describing with these different phrases, love, joy, peace, patience, is these are different aspects of one fruit. So don't think different fruits. Think peel, color orange, seeds, juicy, 
hopefully juicy. If it's dry, it's rough, right? It, it's it's he, he's describing a single fruit, but there's different aspects to it. So, so you don't want to just have one of these. Uh, it all goes together. They're characterizing one thing, someone who's walking in the spirit, someone who um, yes, yeah, following the spirit. Um, and again, all of these go together. Um, and, and why this is important is some of the stuff that's in the list describing the fruit of the spirit, some of us, we go, oh, that one's pretty natural for me, right? Like I know a lot of people who have self-control. Um, and so you go, oh, this is a personality thing, right? Personality type. Um, they have so much self-control, right? They, they control where they spend, uh, what they spend money on, what they spend time doing, how they eat, the way they parent, uh, that they not only control them, but here's the thing. They don't, they don't just control themselves. They end up controlling others, okay? So that's where you start to go, okay, if these other things are in view, just being self-controlled by itself doesn't necessarily embody the fruit of the spirits. Again, when we look at the flesh's version of self-control, um, it's people who, who aren't usually naturally happy or joy-filled. Often they're anxious because their joy is tightly connected to whether their plan goes off without a hitch. Don't raise your hands if that's you. Be like, I like a plan, and I hate a person that messes it up. <laughs> So they're often anxious and controlling. I also know lots of people who have a, the opposite end of the spectrum. They have a joyful vibe all the time. Life is one big fiesta. Let's walk around with a pinata ready to go. When they walk into a room, right, party rock is in the house if they're in the house. They float around through life on a cloud of positivity. But those people don't tend to be good at controlling their appetites or stewarding their resources. No one will control them, not even themselves. <laughs> Right, more, 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 the opposite of self-control. But a person walking in the Spirit, and that person doesn't represent Jesus either well, but a person walking in the Spirit is full of joy. They're enjoying God's gifts of celebration and money and sexuality and food and alcohol in the ways they were intended to be enjoyed. But they also have self-control and wisdom with how they go about enjoying those things. So, in other words, if, you're, if, you, if you are embodying the fruit of the spirit you can party and you can budget you know what i mean and the reason they're all just one fruit is this this is a big idea it's 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 fruit not fruits and the fruit is this the fruit of the spirit is just a description of the character of jesus it's a description of the character of jesus so it's all one thing it looks like jesus again he was full of joy he's often at parties eating and drinking with sinners so much so they're like this guy's a glutton He's a drunkard. It's like, no, I'm not. I kick it with people who are, and I have joy. Um, but there's more to me than that. He definitely had self-control. Not only did he never engage in drunkenness or gluttony or sexual sin, he denied himself of the right to not go to the cross. As nails were driven through his wrists and they mocked him and said, if you are God, you can come down, he stays up there weakness this is the, the the mistake the crowds made if you're really the son of god you could come down weakness was 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 not what kept jesus on that cross it was a love and self-control paul is saying people who naturally would be bent towards the works of the flesh can be over time remade to the point where we're naturally bent towards the character of jesus i've been around people like this people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s where you can just tell they have a different thing going on with Jesus and it shows 
They often, they're not perfect, but they often, they, they, they bend towards peace, not anxiety. They bend towards joy, not sadness. They, they bend towards, and by the way, they, they can experience sadness and still be able to hang on to what they can have joy about. They, they hang on to God in the midst of their sadness. There are people who um, have self-control. They're not stressed out all the time, but they have a, a clear sense of their limitations. They go, God's not going to call me to be more than I can be. So their schedule and their finances and their emotions reflect that, how they engage those things. <clears throat> and here's, here's the dream that Grant and I and Royce and Adam and his elders we have for this church is that we would all be a people. This would be a church full of people who when you show up, people encounter something of Jesus just when you walk into a room. Not that you're perfect, but it's like, oh, Parker's here. Marielle's here. Abigail's here. Jessica's here. Michelle's here. It's like, oh, when, when followers of Jesus walk in, there's a loving, non-anxious, not insecure presence that blesses. And so something we've used in the past that we found helpful to um, help us get clarity on these are Tim Keller's definitions of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and he basically works through the, the Greek word. He defines it, and then he has a counterfeit version of the fruit of the Spirit. So I want to work through these pretty quickly, um, but just to put these in front of you, like this is what we're talking about. So the first one is love. It's the Greek word agape. It means to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what that person brings you. See the difference? Its opposite is fear, self-protection, and abusing people. Its counterfeit, this is a fake version, is selfish affection, where you're attracted to someone and treat them well because of how they make you feel about yourself. Right? So I invest in this relationship because they make me feel good about me, not that it's good for them. Number two is joy. That's a Greek word, uh, Greek word kara, and it's a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Its opposite is hopelessness, and its counterfeit is an elation that's, ex that's based on purely experiencing blessings, not the blesser. So it's just happiness when circumstances are going well. Um. And so it's, it kind of mood swings based on circumstances. If you're happy over here, that's not necessarily the fruit of the spirit of joy. It's you got a promotion, which is great. You don't have to downplay that, but that's not necessarily that anyone could be happy if, if that happens. Does that make sense? Um, whatever, whatever good news is to you when you get it, you're there. Um, the third one is peace, uh, the Greek word irene. It, it means a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than in your own. It replaces anxiety and worry. The fake version of peace, which I covered during the Sermon on the Mount, is indifference or apathy or not caring about anything, right? Again, that's not peace. That's just apathy. Uh, but to go, hey, I care deeply about this, but I'm surrendering the outcome to God. I work hard at it. I care deeply about it. As far as Jesus, we're called to care deeply about things, but we surrender the outcome to God. I want this thing, but I'm not going to make it happen in and of myself. I'm going to surrender to, again, God's will, God's way, God's time. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. You see this all the time. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a story where Abraham and Sarah promised a child, and they get, they get older and older and older, and eventually um, they struggle. They don't have faith. They don't have a peace about it, and so they take matters into their own hands. They don't surrender the outcome. They're like, we're going to make the outcome happen, and Abraham sleeps with his servant Hagar, and has a child named Ishmael. Now, um, uh, there's a guy, um, Joseph sent me a podcast recently about Peter Scazzaro, and he has this phrase I loved. It's called birthing Ishmael's. 
And it's when we just do stuff because we feel anxious and we feel like we need to do something, so we make a move. And churches do this sometimes. They just start a program because they want to. That's what he was getting at in the leadership podcast. But we do this in our own lives as well. We should, during the pandemic, how many people bought cars who probably didn't need to buy a car? How many people, now, we bought a dog during the pandemic. I'm glad we did it. But how many people bought dogs they shouldn't have bought? How many people commit to things they don't really need or join, whatever it is. It's like, I just, I'm feeling anxious and antsy and like, I just got to do something. I'm feeling like I'm falling behind. I'm feeling like I need to make things happen in my life. I'll I'll compromise my standards and date someone that I probably shouldn't be dating or I'll, um, I'll make a financial decision I probably shouldn't be making. On and on it goes. I'll commit to a project at work that I probably shouldn't be committing to. It's trying to make something happen. That's the opposite of peace. That's the, um, the next one is uh, patience, uh, macrothumia, and it's the ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. It's Keller again. Its opposite is resentment toward God and others, and its counterfeits are cynicism or a lack of care. Now, again, cynicism is like, ah, it's probably not going to happen. I'm patient because I don't expect anything to happen. That's different than I'm trusting that God will get there eventually to do the thing he said he'll do, but I, I'm okay to wait. Uh, the next one's kindness. Uh, the Greek word's krestotes. Uh, it's the ability to serve others practically in a way which makes me vulnerable, which comes from having a deep inner security. Its opposite is envy, which leaves me unable to rejoice in another's joy. And its counterfeit is manipulative good deeds, doing good for others so I can gra- congratulate myself and feel like I'm good enough, both to others and to God. So doing stuff to prove yourself, essentially, to God, yourself, or others. The next one is goodness. Uh, agathosune. And really, the idea for goodness, you're like, just be good. It's not be good. It's more about, like, integrity. It's about consistency. Like, you're consistently good. Like, who you are in one place, it integrates to the next place. So you don't have, like, a work self and a family self and a church self and a bar homies self, and a on and on it goes, um, you're integrated. Now, that doesn't mean you don't, have, you don't have boundaries from the perspective of, like, you don't necessarily do the same stuff in each sphere, but your character is the same. Right. Um, Jen Pathak, uh, someone who I used to do spiritual direction with, uh, she has this analogy where she would say, um, she, she talked about her wedding day, and she said, um, imagine that you're at your wedding and at the wedding, um, and you're getting married, your pastor's there, your wild friends from college are there, your friends from high school are there, your small group leader's there, your parents are there, your grandparents are there. Imagine they're all in one, your ex-boyfriend or girlfriends are there. They're all in one room. How would you feel about them talking to each other? And he said, for a lot of us, we'd feel really anxious. And the point she makes is the more integrated we are, the less we would care about that space. Definitely in our present context. Like, we don't have these secret lives, but we're consistently good. We have integrity. Um, That's the opposite, obviously, of being a hypocrite. Um, And um, uh, this is not the same as always being truthful but not always loving. Like, people go, I'm just keeping it real. It's not that. It's a lack of self-control, usually. And usually a bad idea follows. I'm just keeping it real. Usually, I'm keeping it real means I'm keeping it mean. All right, next, faithfulness, pistis. Uh, It's loyalty, courage, so faithfulness. Loyalty, courage to be utterly reliable and true to your word. Its opposite is to be an opportunist, a friend who's only a friend in good times. 
right? So this is someone who goes, hey, I'm with this, uh, I'm with this team to the end. I'm with this family to the end. I'm with this community. As much as it's up to me, I'm not, in other words, I, there might be changes in my life, but I'm not going, how do I get ahead all the time? My friends aren't about getting me into the next room to get connected. My family, I have friends and family that you should be able to go. I have friends I can look back to that I've committed to, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were cool or uncool, whether they were good looking or not good looking, whether they were awesome or not awesome, whatever that is, you go, I have people in my life that I, I love and I'm committed to through thick and thin, in other words. There's a faithfulness. Um, the next one is proutus. This is gentleness. Um, this is another one there's a lot of misconceptions about. Gentleness is um, it's the idea of not needing to get your own way. A lot of people think gentleness is just like you're quiet and mousy. They're like, hey, what kind of food do you want? Like, I don't know, right? Kind of like Napoleon Dynamite with less sighing. <laughs> Whatever you want, I don't know. You go for it. No, not necessarily. So uh, it's not being quiet and nice. Again, you can be a quiet tyrant. I was doing a, a Paul Tripp sermon with my small group recently, and he said, my wife's never yelled at me with her words. He <laughs> said, so in 30 years, she's never yelled at me with her words. Daddy, again, we can, we can go, I'm going to get what I want. I'm not going to ask for it, but I'll get what I want, even if I'm quiet. So gentleness is, do I have to get what I want? Am I allowed, do I let others get their own way? Do I have to force my way? That's a lack of gentleness. The inability to, to, to give others something that they want if it gets in the way of us. And then lastly is self-control. Egratea, uh, it's the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, uh, rather than to, to always be impulsive or uncontrolled. Uh, the slightly surprising counterfeit, Keller says, is willpower, which is based on pride or the need to feel in control. Again, um, the more you try to get controlling, your life can get pretty weird or dysfunctional, so that's not what this is. This is going, um, I can control my appetites for good reasons, for the sake of loving others, by the way, and loving God. It's not just, I want to have control and things neatly in order. It's, as I do this, I bless others. And so if we're becoming like Jesus, again, key idea, we're growing in all of it. All of it. So none of us gets to cop out on any of these is the key idea. Um, we don't get to say, oh, I'm not the gentle type, right? I'm not the gentle type. I saw a Christian leader recently who's like, man, I, I run the men's ministry. We're not the gentle types. Like, so you're not the Jesus types? What are you talking about? Again, it's not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. I don't have to have, I could force my way. I don't have to have my way. I'm not the lovey-dovey type. Cool. You're not the Jesus type. I'm just a glass half empty kind of person. Joy isn't my thing. I'm not the kind of person who follows through on stuff. Not really my vibe. Off the charts, P on Myers-Briggs, big perceiver. Um, not really my thing. Here's the thing. I know someone's growing in grace when they're actually becoming like the aspects of the fruit of the spirit that are opposite to their nature, right? So when the party rock vibey person is fasting, I'm like, whoa, something's happening, right? When the hardcore self-control person's fasting, I'm like, what, in a minute, you already do it. You pray now, okay? Um, the person who hoards wealth, they're like, I'm saving and giving. We're like, dude, you always, you, right? But, but, but the person who um, has no self-control when they're trying to control themselves, that's awesome. On the flip side, you know, um, if someone's like, you know what? I'm going to just bless someone. I'm just going to be generous. I'm not going to analyze it to every detail. I'm going to, like, bless them in a way where I'm kind of vulnerable and it feels a little outside of my control. I go, oh, okay, okay. This isn't just party rock. I don't care. This is someone who cares deeply about details and is surrendering something to God in a beautiful way. 
Uh, I see Grant smirking over there. I think that might uh, might have you know um, maybe him and Shelve a little vibe on that. But um, but 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 right, like my plan doesn't go the way that I want it to, and I don't have all the the I's dotted and the T's crossed, and I can be gracious to others. You see that? So so again, when you go upstream, that's the idea. Um, people who are, are again, they control everything. When I see them surrendering outcomes to God, people who. You have to have plans to surrender their outcomes to God. So I'm not talking about, again, if you're like, I just never have plans. I feel so surrendered. I'm like, that's not surrendering an outcome to God. That's not having any vision for anything, you know, not committing to anything. But when you go, I have plans I care deeply about that I put a lot of work and thought and prayer into, and now I'm surrendering them to God. I go, okay, that's, that's growth in the sphere. Does that make sense? It's not counterfeit. That's real. Uh, another thing I want to say about the fruit of the Spirit is growing in every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit or the character of Jesus will help us in every struggle we face. So it's not like, oh, I have this issue. I need to grow in this area. Again, it's, as I become like Jesus, all of them help. For example, if, if you uh, snap at people and you have fits of rage that shock you at times, excuse me, what aspect of the fruit of the Spirit would help you to avoid that? Would love help? Yes. Would patience help? Yes. Would gentleness help? Yes. Would self-control help? Yes, you get my point. You struggle with an addiction to a substance? Same thing. Would self-control help? Yes. Would joy help? Peace. On and on it goes. And then lastly, this is the last big idea before we close, is we don't develop the fruit of the Spirit by obsessing over our lack of fruit, but by abiding in the vine, by connecting to the Holy Spirit's power. We need the Spirit's power. We need grace. Again, branches don't try to bear fruit. You've never seen a branch on the side of the road like, apples, apples. Like, dude, you're a branch all by yourself. Where's your tree trunk? I don't need it. I'm a trunkless branch. It's free range. It's organic. No, man, like you, you need to be connected to nutrients outside of yourself, a power outside of yourself to do through you what you could not do on your own. I don't care how good of a plan that branch has. If it's not connected to a trunk or a vine, it's not going to happen. It's going to wither and die. Probably be pretty bitter, too. I read a book on counseling recently for a program I'm in, and, uh, and it talked about helping people change. And there's a chapter on grace, and it just kind of, it seems so basic, but it, like, blew my mind. And it was talking, it was contrasting helping people who are living, uh, it's contrasting living under the law and living under grace, which is what Galatians is all about. And the way that it described it was really helpful to me. It said, you know, living under the law is this. is going, okay, there's a standard I need to live up to. I confess it. So I go to a group. Talking about, like, grace in, in relationships or getting help. Um, I confess to a group. I say, guys, please forgive me. God, forgive me. And now I'm going to go try harder on my own strength to change. That's living under the law. Which I was like, that's not the law. There's forgiveness. There's grace. It's like, no, there's grace. Like, you messed up. Now go get it together. And what the authors were saying was, again, imagine a branch doing that when it wasn't bearing fruit. I confess I'm not connected to the branch. Please forgive me, branch. I'm going to try harder. uh, uh, Please forgive me, tree trunk or vine. I'm going to try harder to bear fruit as a branch out here by myself. The author said, no, living under grace is confessing what we've done and where we're at, what we're struggling with, asking for forgiveness, and then admitting I can't do it myself. I need help. I need power outside of myself to deal with this. Like, I need other people's help. Some of us have struggles, if we're honest. You've been working on you for a long time. It's not going to work. You need a power outside of yourself. You need God's power, maybe through community. 
You actually need encouragement and empathy and accountability, and you need things that only other people can give you. You can't really give them to yourself in a meaningful way, or you haven't been able to yet. So the Spirit comes, and so grace isn't just forgiveness. It's a power outside of ourselves to do what we are unable to do all by ourselves. Again, that program me and Grant are in, uh, they, they've, they talk about the idea of grace being favor plus power. Favor plus power. And again, a lot of us are familiar with favor, grace. I'm loved and accepted. But it's also this reality that you are empowered to change, to do what you cannot do. Again, you're chosen and loved, but you're given power from outside of you, like a branch receiving energy and nutrients from a tree or a vine. We surrender ourselves to power outside of ourselves just like that branch. Now, how do you do that? Okay? You might be wondering. It might sound really mystical and ethereal. And uh, to, to do that, uh, we've, uh, as a church, we've used a book um, called The Good and Beautiful God, and another book called The Good and Beautiful You for a summer school class we did. And the guy that wrote that series is a guy named James Brian Smith, and he has this thing called the Spiritual Formation Triangle um, that he got from a mentor of his, a guy named Dallas Willard, you might have heard of. And, uh, and basically, uh, I have a slide. Um, these are different ways of, of experiencing grace. And you need all three of them if you want to change and become someone who looks like the fruit of the Spirit, okay? And I want you to catch the Holy Spirit's in the middle, so the Spirit, walking in the Spirit means allowing the Spirit to uh, do a couple different things in you. And there's three things. Um, the first one is adopting the narratives of Jesus. The other one's participating in community. The other one is basically spiritual disciplines. I'm a preacher, so I love to alliterate things. So I'm going to say redemptive truths, rhythms, and relationships, okay? Rhythms and relationships. You're welcome. So, so he says the first thing we have to do is um, we have to adopt the narratives of Jesus. That's a fancy way to say we have to be able to reject lies and embrace truth about God, about our identity in him, about who we are and who we aren't. Messages that tell us we should be something that God's never called us to be. Messages that tell us we're dirty. Messages that tell us we should be ashamed of ourselves all the time. Messages that tell us we'll never change. The gospel speaks into all of that. Jesus teaches us all kinds of things about God and ourselves and the, and the life we live in. But again, we get a lot, a lot of lies from our culture and from different people growing up and from bad teaching in the church and from social media, goodnight nurse, right? Like, like there's a lot of bad ideas that shape us, narratives we take on that we actually believe more than the Bible when push comes to shove. And so the first thing is these redemptive truths or these narratives. The second one is people, right? There's the, the community piece. You and I, um, God told Adam, you know, it's not good to be alone. That's true for all. That's not a marriage verse. That's a humanity verse about community. We need people to help us do what we can't do on our own. We need people to confront us. We need people to show us our need. Sometimes it's not even intentional, but my sin or dysfunction, if I get close enough to you, it's like I'm, I'm carrying a cup of sin and brokenness. It spills on you if we're close enough together. And then God uses that to show me my impact on others, which helps us grow. We have to take responsibility. We can reject that and run away. That's why a lot of people run away from friendships and marriages and churches and communities because you, I feel exposed because I spilled on you, and now I'm embarrassed. Instead of going, no, no, now we have a chance to go, whoa, what's in that cup? And to sit with Jesus and set the cup down and go, hey, everyone's got a cup like that. I'd love to help you with that. And so we need people for even that to happen where the Spirit uses that. God shows you, like, oh, man, if I keep doing what I'm doing, it's going to impact people I love in ways I don't want to impact them. So the Spirit uses people in that way. Uh, the Spirit uses people to, to give us empathy. In that program Grant and I are in, they describe empathy as, like, oxygen for your soul. 
Um, we need people to confess to. We need people to help us practically, to hold us accountable, reminding us of our deepest desires, Jesus and becoming like him. So we need, we need um, narratives, we need people, and we need practices. And practices are, um, you know, disciplines or uh, things that you do consistently uh, to experience God, uh, to become like him. These could be spiritual disciplines like fasting or reading the Bible or meditating, praying the Lord's Prayer, listening prayer, um, journaling while listening to the Holy Spirit, Lectio Divina, Sabbaths, on and on it goes. But it's things that you do intentionally to position yourself to experience grace. One author has described it like setting, putting up a sailboat on a, putting up a sail on a sailboat. So again, the wind pushes the sailboat, but it's our job to put the sail up. So again, if we're in community with people and we're sitting under the preaching of the gospel and we're putting new practices in place, all of those combined, the Spirit uses all of that to create a new kind of person who sees the world and themselves differently. There's new truths. There's narr- they have the narratives of Jesus, not themselves, or their culture, their family of origin primarily, but, but of Jesus. Other uh, people who do different things, and as they do those things, they experience something of God, and they're in a community that also encourages them towards the things of Jesus. And organically, the Spirit, again, we do all that stuff, but as we do that stuff, the Spirit of God, he, he, he does something. We start to bear fruit. Again, um, last thing I'll say idea-wise before we close is uh, John, who's not here today, but, but John uh, Denner, he often talks about this idea of cultivating an environment for growth to happen. And the analogy he always uses is farming back in the day, ancient farming, where they would plant and they would, put seed, like they, they would till the soil and they would plant and they would water the soil but at the end of the day, I mean, they could water it to some point, but, but really they were dependent on rain and sunshine and they're not being um, droughts or natural disasters or war or whatever that would destroy the crop. There was a part of them, they, they created the environment and then God took over from there. And so in the same way, you and I, we, there are things that we can participate in, authentic community, these practices and engaging the truth. And again, there's no way to change without having all three of those present. Eventually, it, it won't work itself out. But if you have all three, the truth of the gospel, loving, challenging, empathetic community, and you start to change up your practices, over time, slowly but surely, fruit happens. Like, wait a minute. I'm not reacting how I used to react. I have a hope that doesn't make sense based on the circumstances that have just presented themselves. I have a peace that doesn't make sense. I love a person who isn't being very loving to me right now. I'm starting to empathize with maybe where they're even coming from, and I'm praying for them. And I'm loving them when they're being harsh to me in a way that doesn't make sense to me in the moment. Does that make sense? And so it's our part to engage that stuff, and we ask the Spirit to do in us what we couldn't do in ourselves. So we can do these three things. We can't make fruit happen, but we can do these three things and then trust the Spirit to do these things in us as we practice those things. I would love you, um, before we sing, I would love you to ask the Spirit. Holy Spirit, is there an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit you're highlighting you want me to grow in? Is there a way that I, I are there certain ways that I look like Jesus? And let him, let him reveal that to you. Because some of you right now, like part of, you, part of the fruit of the Spirit's there. Like, like you are look, starting to look more like Jesus in an area. 
And there's another part of you where that's not the case. Say, I want to holistically embody the fruit of the Spirit. So I'd encourage you, Mark, if you're down, maybe strum for a little bit before we sing. Just take a couple minutes. You can just jot down, if you have a journal or a phone. Um, where, where do I feel like I am starting to look like Jesus in terms of the fruit of the Spirit? Is it love? Is it joy? Is it peace? And on the, uh, on the flip side, Holy Spirit, which ones are you highlighting that you're calling me to grow in? So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll take some time to do that. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd, I pray you'd bring to mind, you'd encourage us with the ways that we're already starting to embody the character of Jesus in our life. Some of us, we're, um, we have like false humility, and we can't acknowledge your work where there clearly is your work. So we pretend to be worse than we are in an area, and Lord, I just pray against that. We could just go, yeah, you know what? The Spirit's doing that in me. I'm becoming like Jesus in this area. I've been partnering with the Spirit, and I'm seeing fruit. And on the flip side, some of us, um, it's not false humility. It's like a false sense of righteousness. Like, I need to be good. I need to be good. I don't want to look at the bad parts of me. If, if there's a bad part of me, that means there's no good part of me. Lord, I just pray you'd shut that lie down. The lie that we're either all good or all bad. The reality is that we're all in process. There are good and bad parts to all of us. Parts of us that look like Jesus now and parts of us that don't look like Jesus. And would you give us the courage to look at the parts of us that don't look like Jesus right now? Those don't negate the growth we have in these other areas. But they help us see we do need to grow in this area. And it's not to measure up to a standard It's not to be accepted. It's to experience all these beautiful things, these gifts that we can give to the world. Self-control is not about just me being on time. It's me blessing the other person who I'd be late to. Peace isn't just about me feeling better. It's, it's, It's embodying peace where I go to a world that's so anxious and afraid. And so, Lord, um, would you point out the areas where we need to grow, but would you affirm the areas we have grown and help people begin to continue to journey with you in these areas? I'll give you guys a second to just listen to the Holy Spirit. Hey, y'all. Cool, I hope that was really fruitful for you. Um, Seriously, great sermon, Andy. Really appreciate you. Um, All right, well, so normally we'd be doing a second song, like Andy said, but uh, we went a little long, and we have a really important announcement for you guys that I'm going to share, and so I want to make sure we have enough time to to go through it. It's going to take about 10 minutes, um, and so it'd be great if you can stay. It's really um, pretty important, Um, and so if you can stay, that would be amazing. yeah, so my name is Royce. I'm one of the elders at Restored. Um, I was feeling not nervous about the announcement, but Andy was getting nervous. He's, like, making me feel nervous, and it's not, it's not a bad thing at all. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read, read through this. Um, so the, bi- the big announcement in one sentence is that beginning in June, Andy and Jackie Rogers are going to be beginning a pastoral sabbatical. All right? All right. No crying, Andy. You make me cry. Um, So what does this mean? Well, first question you might have is, what is a pastoral sabbatical? So a pastoral sabbatical is a period of time, usually several several months, 
that a pastor takes off from the regular duties to rest, renew, refresh uh, their spiritual and emotional reserves. This time is intended to provide pastors with the opportunity to engage in activities that help them to rest and recharge under the care of professional therapists, spiritual directors, and sabbatical coaches. It is generally recommended that a pastor take a sabbatical every five to seven years, although the exact timing may depend on the needs of the pastor and their community. Uh, so how long should these sabbaticals be? Well, there's an author named Sean Nemechek. He's a pastoral health expert, and he says this. He says sabbaticals are typically between 40 days and one year. From a practical standpoint, 40 days doesn't seem long enough, and a year-long sabbatical might create too much distance between a pastor and the church, thus making it difficult to reconnect after. He says, I believe that 90 days is a sweet spot. It's long enough to work through everything in a deep level, but not so long that separation begins to occur. However, the short answer to this question is that a sabbatical should be as long as a pastor and the church think is necessary to deeply reconnect with God. So why are pastoral sabbaticals a good idea? So according to Soul Shepherding and Fuller Seminary, being a pastor is tough, guys. Uh, here's a few examples, uh, struggles that pastors run into. So 90% of pastors work 55 to 75 hours a week, all right, which is a lot. 75% uh, of pastors are extremely stressed out or anxious. 80% of pastors' spouses wish their spouse was in a different profession. <laughs> That's not good. Jackie's like, I've never thought that. Uh, Seminary-trained pastors, um, on average, only last five years in pastoral ministry before they get out and switch careers. That's a sad statistic. So these stats are they're really rough. Um, that being said, here's a more happy set of statistics. 94% of church members surveyed found that their pastors seemed re-energized and full of faith after a sabbatical. 87% of pastors reported a renewed commitment to ministry, and more than 50% were in the same church 15 years later, which is what we want here, right, y'all? Again, most denominations recommend a sabbatical for lead pastors every five to seven years. Andy and Jackie have been lead pastors and church planners for, how many years do you guys think? Longer, yeah, longer than that. 12 years, actually. Isn't that crazy? And before that, they were pastors at a mega church for four years, and they had five services every Sunday. They had them working 60 to 70 hours a week. So crazy. Um, so again, most denominations recommend a sabbatical for lead pastors every five to seven years. Andy and Jackie have been lead pastors and church planners um, for 16 years. This will be their first one in 16 years. Isn't that crazy? In many church traditions, they would have had three sabbaticals by this time. So the next question is, when is the best time to, to take a sabbatical? And the answer is before the pastor needs them. So kind of like a preventative care <laughs> situation is what we're going for, okay? <laughs> uh, not after. We want to be really clear, Andy and Jackie are not under church discipline. There's no scandal or conflict on the leadership team that has led to this decision. It's purely to care for them as they have cared for us so intentionally and for so long. 
We love you guys. All right, E, what happens on a pastoral sabbatical? So again, according to uh, Sean Nemechek, a sabbatical should include three broad movements. Those are rest, renew, and reinvest. So I want to highlight a few of them now. So rest. Sufficient rest is necessary to have the clarity of mind and spirit needed to really connect with God on a deep level. During this phase of rest, the mind, body, and soul are healing from the stress and even trauma of ministry. Bill Gutierrez, a psychologist and spiritual director who specializes in sabbaticals for pastors, he describes how rest works. He says, eventually, after your body stops jittering, after your thoughts stop flittering, after you start feeling your emotions, after your ideal self that performs and pleases is dismantled, after you experience your nothingness and your nakedness before God, after you experience unconditional love, then you can hopefully begin to really rest in your body and soul. This stage is all about healing from whatever the past five to seven years have thrown at you. Vicarious trauma, long hours, spiritual warfare, multitasking, even global pandemics. After we begin to rest, we can be renewed. So this is the second um, broad movement of sabbaticals is renew. Uh, Nemechek again says, as we begin to rest deeply in the love of God, it can be tempting to get back to work, <laughs> but this will be a mistake. Like the athlete who's recovering from injury, we gotta take it slow and rebuild our strength before re-entering the game or we risk further injury. The renew phase is all about living in the love of God until it becomes our functional reality. This phase is less about healing from an injury and more about preparing for the season. Resting has to do with a broken bone healing, but renewing has to do with the bone being strengthened. So this leads to the third and final phase of sabbatical, which is reinvest. This is where under the care of a therapist, a spiritual director and a sabbatical coach, working with Andy, Jackie and the elders, a plan is made for Andy and Jackie to re-enter ministry in a way that is best for the church and their family. So what does this mean for the Rogers while they're away on their sabbatical? So in the three months that the Rogers will be away, Grant Clark will take over as interim lead pastor. Thank you. <laughs> Give him and Shell big hugs, guys. Uh, he will be responsible for leading the staff, overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of the church, and doing the bulk of the preaching. Uh, Grant will be also handling the bulk of the pastoral care while Andy is away. He will work with the elders and Ashley Stroman, our, our clinical psychologists in our family of churches, to make sure that Uptown's members are cared for while Andy is gone. This summer, we will have a few initiatives and events, but we're going to be doing our best to acknowledge our church's limits and not burn out while there's less manpower on the ground. And uh, with that explanation, I'm actually going to do a quick interview with Andy and Jackie. So come on up. Hello. Um, so I want to ask you guys, how do you feel about the sabbatical? Um, what are you looking forward to, and what are you feeling nervous about? 
sorry. Um, wow. I, I have a lot of different feelings about it. Um, I think um, the first that comes to mind is that I feel really excited um, about this. Um, I know that there's a lot of churches that uh, don't actually like to give their pastors sabbaticals until something like, you know, some type of moral failure or something has happened. And so I just really feel thankful um, that you guys have like supported us and want us to be healthy and want us to uh, take time to um, reflect on the last however many years of ministry and get more vision for, you know, the next season of ministry ahead. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. I think uh, just kind of some of the things that you shared are very true. Um, but I think in ministry, you see like you see some really beautiful things. You see people on their most happiest moments when they're getting married and all of these, they're having babies and um, so many life uh, like achievements and accomplishments that they go through. You're there for those moments, but you're also there with people like in the very, you know, the hardest, most traumatic moments of their life when, you know, a loved one is passing away or has passed away or something with a spouse has happened. Um, so I just, I think we've seen a lot over the years and I think we both feel just really ready to, um, take a step back and reflect and get more vision. And, and then also to like for the sabbatical, I think our, um, kids have, um, like experienced a lot, um, with us being in ministry and with Andy being in full-time ministry and, you know, whether it's been like nights like where just one parent is home putting them down me <laughs> or uh you know or we just are emotionally depleted from a situation that's happening and you know we are growing and learning how to um how to uh how to handle those situations as we mature we're learning how to okay give ourselves to certain things um, and depend on other people also for those things. But I think um, having this uninter uninterrupted time with our kids is going to be really special. Um, and during that time, we actually plan on going international with them. And uh, that's something that's really special to us because we really feel like God has like called us in different times and different seasons um, to other people in other countries and stuff. And so just to be able to share that with the kids um, and show them that like God's word is really big, but it's actually really small too. Um, it's going to be really exciting for us. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that's great. Um, I think the thing I feel most excited about, honestly, is just like extended. It's like extended time with our kids. Um, like we're good parents. Like we really are. Like those like we are. Like we are. I'm actually. I am home most nights. Every once in a while. But I'm. I'm home most nights. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, we don't need to do it fight right now. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But um. But it doesn't change the fact that like you know in a lot of ways I am kind of on call all the time. Um, 
I have friends who are in law enforcement and friends who are therapists. And they're both like, you have a harder job than me, man. Like just the way it works at times with people, like the lack of margin and um, the lack of like you're in community with people that you're helping, all that stuff and lack of boundaries at times. And um, yeah, yeah. So there's just a lot that's just tricky. And, um, and then on top of that, like we have, you know, we have 10 we're moving towards 10 locations in our family of churches. Again, it's like close to 1,500 people. We're at our Easter gatherings in four continents, and we have an absolute calling that's connected to that. And so being the children of that, I think, could just be tricky. And so, um, you know, the other day, um, Olivia told me, she said, I said, you know, she said something like, Dad, I just, I don't see you enough. And I said, I see you every day. She's like, no, but, like, when you're here, you're not here, you know, and, um and I think I just really want to give them, you know, that, that extended. And again, we're good parents. We're, we're, we are present um, genuinely, but like, I just know it could be so much better. And I, I hate the idea that I'm giving other people the best part of me or the, um, does that make sense? And so again, there's only so much reserve you have and stuff. So anyway, it's not about saying pastors, uh, being a pastor is a harder job than other jobs. A lot of you guys have really hard jobs just over time, the way it's gone for us. Um, yeah, man, I just feel like it's important. And, um, and in addition to that, man, First Peter 5 says Satan's trying to kill elders of churches. So it's a real vibe, real promise of scripture for me combined with just all the other stuff. So anyways, I just, um, I'm excited to get the time with the kids. And um, yeah, and I think just nervousness. Like I think as much as I don't want to find my identity in my work, I think it's to not work like for three months. It's going to be, I just, it's hard for me to not do stuff. Like, I don't know, like I... So um, we're still working out with the team how to do that well. But I, I think it'll be hard. I think there'll be a, there will be a, like a small dying to self. And like, you know, before you, you truly experience, you know, like that Sean Nemechek quote, but like how much God loves you apart from your performance, you have to not perform for a while and see how it feels. And I just know it's probably going to, from what I've heard, it's, it's pretty hard. It takes a while to even be able to rest to kind of decompress from that. So anyways, and then lastly, I, I think I have a fear. You guys would think I'm like lazy for doing the sabbatical. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I don't know. I not how I'd feel for you. So, um, and so anyways, I think I have that fear, but overall I am excited to meet God in it. And I'm excited to come back and, and bless you all more than we have. I think you guys have gotten a tired version of me for a few years, more tired at the soul level. And so I'm excited to man me in a renewed, renewed walk with Jesus, what that could be like for a church. So yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks guys. Um, yeah, I feel like this is really going to be a like a life-changing experience for you guys. I'm so excited. You're going to come back different people in a good way. Even better than you are now, somehow. Um, last question is, how can we be praying for you guys? Um, yeah, I think uh, just that it would be fruitful. Um, we connect as a family. We connect with Jesus. Um, we had a really sweet like lodging hookup in Spain that might have changed, which we're a little stressed out about. It looks good still. Um, but anyways, so just pray for that. Um, just logistics, traveling with three kids. I don't know. Just, I guess just that it would be fruitful. Um, it'd be fruitful. We connect as a family and with God. And if you have one, one thing you want to pray for. One thing. Only one thing. Only one thing. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> all of those things are my one thing. Um, but yeah, I think just the, the logistical side, I'm thinking practical a lot. Like, how are we going to do this? with all of the kids and, you know, enjoy each other. We and have to get to school. <laughs> we'll <laughs> yeah. yeah. But <laughs> it's going to be a thing. But it's going to be great. Uh, but we'd love prayer for that. And, um, yeah, just that we wouldn't just have time off, but, like, the time off we would 
um, be preparing also for the future. Um, so because a lot of people, you can take a vacation and still come back tired from your vacation. So yeah, just that we would um, be encouraged by the spirit and grow in the ways that we need to grow and stuff. And uh, yeah, I was going to say, it's not a three month vacation that like sabbatical is way more than that. So you'll rest uh, like we'll probably have a vacation inside of the sabbatical or maybe Jack may get away for like a week or something, have some fun. Um, but it's, 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 it's a lot broader than that in terms of emphasis and we'll be under the care of a team and being challenged actually doing some hard stuff that we haven't had time to do, you know, working on ourselves and our relationship and our, a lot of good stuff. So, yeah. Can I pray for you guys? Yeah. Oh, sorry. What you oh, no, I, I was about Adam was going to say. Oh, yeah. Adam, would you love to come pray for these guys? Please. So the elder, Adam Jones. <laughs> We're still trying to seal the prayer fire for me here. I know, what a prayer. <laughs> um, yeah, let's pray for this couple. Um, yeah, Jesus, thank you for Annie and Jackie. Um, I just thank you for, first of all, for the work that um, Annie has done, and I think in each of the individual lives here of this church, of the greater family of churches, um, what a gift he's been to um, be used by you, to be obedient to you. Um, God, I pray as he and Jackie and the kids um, go on this sabbatical that, um, yeah, it's not just like a time to, um, like Andy said, it's not just like a vacation. It's a time to rest and rest in you. Um, and I think just like thank you for the gift that they've given us to model what it means to actually like Sabbath. Um, so it's not just like leisure. Um, it's moving towards you um, and just being in your presence and seeking direction. Um and just being reminded of who they are in your eyes, Lord. Um, so I just pray for, um, yeah, like logistics as they travel. Um, I just pray for sweet moments that they have with their kids, that these are really beautiful memories um, that will form um, in their family. Like just like these sweet, sweet memories of um, being together as a family um, and enjoying their time together. Um, and I just pray that um, Annie and Jack are reminded that um, as much as they love this church, that you love the church even more. Um, they can trust um, in you. Uh, Annie can trust in you that, um, yeah, like you're providing, you're watching over us, Lord. And um, yeah, I just pray that, yeah, for just some, yeah, beautiful memories together as a family. Um, and that as Annie and Jack together um, seek guidance, seek, um, yeah, renewal in you that you would just have like some really beautiful encounters with them together, uh, I think individually too, um, and pray for another 16 years of, or longer <laughs> of ministry. Um, yeah, and just thank you for this couple, their family. Um, yeah, we love you. It's your name we pray, amen. Um, thanks everyone. Just wanna say um, we will still be here until June. So you can say what's up, say bye, all that stuff. And then, um, and then we'll be back in September. So that's how it work. But the next six weeks we'll be around. We're just going to give you a heads up. So it wasn't like, hey, they're gone for three months. Starting next week would be kind of weird. So love you all. Um, the kids, kids ministry is ready to pick kids up. Other than that, love you. And uh, love to see you in the next few weeks.